No, and you know, if you look, if you take a whole group of cyclists, male cyclists, yeah, you know, they might talk amongst each other, yeah. but they'll all say things like, you know, my balls are numb when I get off my bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's not normal. No. It's not normal to lose sensation in a body part yes. from sitting on a bike. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Okay, good evening everyone. It's Wayne Mahmood here from CPD Health Courses and we're very lucky to have with us Dawn Sandalcidi, who's uh, a physical therapist all the way from Denver, Colorado. Now Dawn is a, a physical therapist who specializes in the pelvic uh, muscle dysfunction area. So not something that we've spoken about before and I'm really interested in this subject to find out more and uh, see what it's all about and uh, how uh, we might be able to learn more about this type of dysfunction. Uh, welcome, Dawn. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. So you're in uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, the other end of the world. How's uh, <laughs> What time is it over there? It's uh, 6 p.m. 6 p.m., so it's 10 a.m. here in Melbourne. And so uh, your weather, are you cold or uh, warm there now? You know, right now we've had a little bit of a cold front come through, but it's typically high 80s. Okay, that's uh, pretty warm. Yeah. 35, 36. But you're Fahrenheit guys, aren't you? Right. Yeah, 36 maybe. Oh, really? Wow. 35. That that's that's warm, isn't it? It's warm here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty warm. Well, send us some of that because we're pretty cold down here in Melbourne. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so Dawn, uh, let's get going. Um, as I mentioned, you're a physical therapist. Uh, you're board certifi- certified in uh, biofeedback pelvic muscle dysfunction, and you specialize in pelvic muscle dysfunction, incontinence and pain, orthopedic manual therapy, and TMJ treatment. Uh, you're a leading expert in the field of pediatric incontinence uh, to do with physical therapy, and you've trained medical professionals in manual therapy since 1992, both nationally and internationally. And uh, Dawn, you've uh, actively been treating patients for the past 32 years, and uh, you have a, a practice in Denver, Colorado, which officially makes you an expert. I think anyone over 30 years must be an expert in their field. Would that be... Uh, <laughs> It's actually 34 years, so that makes me even older. Oh, 34. Well, then you must be really an expert by now then. Okay. So, (laughs) all right. And you've also published on in the the Journal of Urologic uh, Nursing and the Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy, the Journal of of the Section of Women's Health, and the Journal of International Association of Orofacial Myology. That's a very impressive title for a journal. Uh, Anyway, um, that's great. So, we've got you in. Introduced, we know your background. Um, have I got all that correct, Dawn? Yes. Excellent. Okay, let's get going. So, uh, as part of my research for this podcast, I was looking at your website, and uh, I love this statement that uh, you put on there. And it says, "Pelvic pain is not normal, and it can be treated." So, what is pelvic pain, and how common is it? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. It's such a, an underserved population. Um, chronic pelvic pain is, um, in women, is non-cyclical pain that's lasted for six months or greater. And uh, actually, the prevalence, it depends on the research, either one in seven women. Uh, some papers talk about five 
um, percent to 26 percent of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, you know, so it's uh, it's just it, I think the defining factor is that it's six months or greater, and there's just not a diagnosis people can give to it. In the male po- population, um, what used to be called prostodynia. Mm-hmm. is now called chronic pelvic pain syndrome or CPPS. Yeah. And it's um it's basically the the same um thing over greater than 6 months of uh, pain in the absence of um of infection of any kind of the uh of the prostate and the, and the male patient also experiences um anything any pain in the in the genital groin or perineal area. Okay, that's great. That's, that's a good definition. That gives us some idea of what we're talking about. So you actually, you know, when I, uh, as an osteopath, an acupuncturist, dry needling therapist, uh, and, and as many of our listeners will be thinking, um, you know, when people say pelvic pain, you automatically think of women having pelvic pain. But you, you just said that, uh, of course, men also suffer from pelvic pain. So who, who are the main sufferers of pelvic pain? Who, who, what's age group or gender and what do they do? What are their predisposing factors? You know, that's, um, it's, it's actually, it was hard to, I was, I was actually looking for some research to give you some more specifics on that. Um, mm. in the United States, uh, you know, the women range in age from 18 to 50 most commonly. Right. So, um, you know, childbearing years a little later. Um, and it's, um, in men, we just, we all we, all I could uh, find specifically on men was that, uh, um, men that uh, have common have urologic dis- diagnoses older than 50 is um, the most common population, and about a third of them are men under 50 years old. So it's kind of the 50 uh, age marker, but we don't, you know, it can happen in any age. Mm-hmm. And you know, clinically, uh, you know, I've seen you, you won't believe this, but I've actually seen a, a pediatric patient with mm-hmm. pedendal neuralgia. Wow. As a diagnosis, um, and a, and a child. Mm. Uh, but the typical pain, you know, pelvic pain in men, you know, it really ranges from mid twenties to, you know, I've got a 65 year old. All right. Okay. Great. So yeah. it obviously affects a, a wide range of people up to around 50, but obviously, you know, as with many things, it can go over that. So what sort of symptoms are right. coming in complaining of who have, uh, pelvic pain? Uh, it can, it's a, a wide variety. Um, it can be uh, um, pain with bowel movements. Um, could be just a simple constipation. Um, that's my soapbox. So if you want to, me to talk a lot about constipation, I'm happy to do so. Um, <laughs> okay. Urinary retention or hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, urinary frequency, urgency, or burning with urination. Yeah. Um, it could be a pain with sitting or coccygeal pain. Um, any pressure or burning pain around the genitals yeah. or around the anus, a lot of patients will describe a like they're sitting on a tennis ball. Yeah. Um, it could be clitoral pain or sensitivity, penile pain right. or sensitivity, um, pain before, during, or after orgasm for both men and women. Right. And not to forget, uh, you know, low back pain and uh, you know pelvic girdle pain. Yeah. Um, you know, pain with pregnancy also goes along with that. And then, of course, any of your patients with uh, pelvic organ prolapse, you know, okay. cystocele, rectocele, yeah. uterine prolapse. Yeah. Okay. So it's a wide range of things, as you said. But, um, you know, if I was to say what's the most common thing that I see most of would be uh, neck tension and headaches and low back pain. But if I was a pelvic pain mm-hmm. expert, what would be the most common presentations for men or uh, and women? 
I think, you know, from a diagnosis standpoint, I would say it's pudendal neuralgia. Okay. Um, and the pain is, uh, is very, very neurologic. It's burning, throbbing, yeah. um, you know, pressure. Um, in the genital region, it can present itself more rectally depending on the branch of the nerve, uh, if it's the inferorectal branches or it could be, uh, more perineal uh, mid, in the middle area or it could be at the tip of the penis or clitoris and, in men, it's either rectal or penile pain. In women, I see more vulvar pain. Okay. All right. So, you know, just listening to you uh, talking, uh, it, it seems like to be a pelvic pain expert, it, it's uh, very similar to somebody who is a good dry needling therapist in terms of their understanding of anatomy. And you're talking a lot there about uh, the conditions that present and the anatomy behind them. Would you agree that that's one of the, the main things that uh, you understand well as a pelvic pain expert? Absolutely, it's critical. Um, I wrote the chapter on um, pelvic floor dry needling for Jan Dummerholt in the dry needling textbook, sure. and uh, you know it's, you really need to understand where the where the nerves are coming through and the blood yeah. supply, and yeah. so, um, it's a sensitive, very sensitive area to needle. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sensitive in many ways, uh, there that he. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I think anatomy is, is one of the keys to being a good therapist, uh, a manual therapist uh, for whatever you do, but particularly, as you say, for, for an intervention that we'll talk about later, dry needling, and uh, for what you do as well. I'm glad you, you brought that absolutely. up. Absolutely. Okay, so, uh, you know, um, I, I'm guessing that your type of case history isn't going to be um, uh, the same as someone else who perhaps does more your routine neck and back pain problems. Yeah. It's probably going to have a, a, a similar structure, but you're going to have different questions. How's your case history uh, different to the, the, the sort of the orthodox one? I think first and foremost is to... Um, is to be able to connect with the patient and, and um, have an uh, appreciation of how hard it is for them to even talk about their pelvic pain. Sure. Uh, women have, have, have a little easier time discussing pelvic pain, and um, but in the male population, you know, you don't go to, you, you don't go to your to play golf with your buddies and say, you know, I've got this pain at the tip of my penis; it's killing me. Well, you know? But you'll talk about your back pain or your knee pain. Yeah. And so, just having that sensitivity around the topic. And, uh, and feeling really comfortable with talking about it uh, is helpful. Okay. But for me, the first thing I want to do is, is, is I want to ask them questions that I'm pretty direct about is, you know, um, inability to sit is a very common problem in pelvic pain. Sitting is very uncomfortable, um, and, and so is intercourse. So asking questions about intercourse, asking questions about, um, about sitting. And, and, you know, and the other thing is a trauma. You know, if you've had any... Um, falls on your on your coccyx or yes. uh, you know here in Colorado we have a lot of skiing we're we're pretty well known for yeah. our ski areas and there's a lot of snowboarding mm. injuries with uh, falls on <laughs> on the coccyx we see lots of them yes. so uh, you know that's just one piece of it and I think what I what I in connecting with the patient I uh, my first question is I always want to know what their cognitive belief is of what's going on. And what is their internal physician telling them? Mm. And it's amazing how much information I can gather and information about their history that they probably wouldn't fill out in the form that you ask. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. They, you know, oh, and by the way, you know, I kind of feel like my body's really twisted. 
Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, when did you when did you start feeling twisted? Yeah. I'm like, well, I had the shoulder injury. I wonder what that shoulder injury might have to do with your with your pelvic pain. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? So just you know, kind of getting the um, the patient to connect with um, themselves and to have them tell me what they think is going on. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I'd love to ask you this question, Dawn. Um, you know, when you really dig down into a case history and you really listen to patients and you come up with a possible uh, reason for why they might be presenting with pelvic pain in this case, that seems um, that's distant from wherever they're feeling pain. Like you might say to them, look, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, completely sure, but we'll have a look at your examination. But it could be that the fall you had last winter on the ski slopes that uh, where you dislocated your shoulder or you landed on your right shoulder, that twisted uh, the the body, the, the, the spine, uh, put some tension through this area, and now we've got a problem down here. They're just amazed. They love that uh, um, sense of, wow, what, you mean it's not just as simple as uh, here's my problem, there's, therefore your problem must have, must be right here as well. It can actually be distant for me. Do, do you find that? Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, this, I had one favorite patient who I didn't see him very often because I didn't need to, hmm. but he'd been in pelvic therapy and, and orthopedic therapy, uh, primarily pelvic, because his symptom was bladder pressure. Yeah. Just bladder pressure, and and you know, and in his history. I'd seen that he had a severe scoliosis and had Harrington rods placed when he was okay. 21, and now he's a man of 47. Sure. And um, and he had this uh, this bladder pressure, and I said, well, tell me, you know, when do you experience it? What is, you know, I always ask, what has meaningful meaning to you? What is your meaningful task, if you will? Yeah. So he said, you know, I like to lie in bed and read on my iPad, mm. and every time I do that, I have bladder pain. Well, okay. And I'm, I'm, the first thing I thought of is, okay, it's dural. Yeah. And with his history yeah. of, you know, his history of Harrington rods and spine surgery, of course yeah. he's got a lot of adhesions. Okay. And, you know, on further exam, I found that he had a rib dysfunction. Well, and I corrected his rib and taught him how to correct his rib and released, I used some needling to release the, yeah. some of the muscles around the rib that were holding it in place. And yeah. I saw him four times and his, his, his bladder pressure was gone. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. They're great stories, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're fun. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, really, um, just it, it's it's all about exploration and discovery of uh, somebody's uh, body and their tissues to find. You're a detective, and, and that's what's great. Um, so uh, the uh, the next thing I ask you, obviously, you've taken your history now. Um, the examination, uh, that's going to be obviously quite different in, in terms of what you're looking for. How, how does that uh, differ from y your average exam that uh, the, the physical therapist who's interested in your back pain and neck pain does? Well, I think um, I think that uh, what we do is uh, a little bit more into the, of course, into the pelvic floor. Of course, we're looking, we do an internal pelvic floor muscle evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a tissue evaluation, and, and we look at the the, um, the pump system. You know, is it working well with the diaphragm? How is the pelvic floor connecting yeah. uh, with the rest of the body? Um, what is how are they posturally holding? Um, pelvic floor tension and postural dysfunction are very closely related. Yeah. Um, so of course we're looking at the fascial connections, the connective tissue. Um, the connective tissues can be very. It's, it's actually fascinating. Um, yep. There's a diagnosis called uh, vulvar vestibulitis, 
Um, and and actually, the vulvar tissue gets it recedes into the body. The connective tissues get so tight, oh, wow. and and the labia minora will be absent on the side of pain. Wow, it'll be gone. That's amazing. And and it's a it's connective tissue. So really having a, um, an understanding and an appreciation of the connective tissues and how well they move, mm, mm. Uh, and the and the perineum yeah. is is also very important. And so it's you know it's of course a, a, a pelvic girdle musculoskeletal exam that anybody else would do with a um, with back pain. It's still part of their pelvic girdle. So that has that whole system yeah. um, needs to be evaluated for its ability to transfer loads and its ability to yeah. um, to be stable yes uh, in the in the pelvis did mm. I answer your question I think you did I think you did a very good job but, but uh, it's it's stirring up more questions as you as you speak more about it but uh, I imagine yeah. just listening to your um, uh, examination there uh, this is not your average examination and there's going to have to be a lot of um, explanation to your patients because although they're probably going to be coming to see you these patients because they've been recommended by someone else who might have had the same problem or or whatever they might be expecting um, that they may get asked about questions to do with um, uh, sexual function uh, bladder movements bowel movements and so on they're probably not uh, going to be uh, sure how a physical therapist or why a physical therapist is going to be interested in uh, possibly the appearance of their um, genital organs or maybe do an internal examination. There's going to have to be a lot of consent stuff and discussion, right? Absolutely. And also being aware of histories of sexual abuse, both in men and in women. Yeah. It's um, We always think of women in sexual abuse, but there's, um, and I have a fair number of male patients. So it's first and foremost is really explaining the anatomy. Yeah. Um, of the pelvic floor and, and, and making it an objective, um, evaluation. Say, so here's, here's what the pelvic floor functions are. This is what it's supposed to do for you. It's supportive, sphincteric. It's, you know, the pelvic floor is a postural muscle. It's, it, it works together with the transverse abdominis for the core stabilization. And, and, and so when we make these connections for them between their pelvic floor and the rest of their musculoskeletal system, it helps them appreciate why we need to go there. Um, and then absolutely, you know, asking, do you have any questions and explaining this is how the exam is going to work. Yeah. Where I'm going to first touch. I'm going to, you know, we're going to look at the tissues. We're going to look at the sensation. We're going to look for reflexes. And then I'm going to insert a finger either vaginally or rectally. And I explain that this, this is the first muscle group I'm going to look at and I'm going to palpate for muscle tone. I'm yeah. going to palpate for trigger points that might be existing in the muscles and, and then for strength if, if possible. Yeah. And, you know, and then just explain everything step by step by step. And then after the explanation, uh, then I just sit with them and say, do you have any questions and is this okay with you? Do you sure. feel comfortable moving forward with this exam? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, I was teaching um, a couple of weeks ago a, a dry needling course, and uh, one of the uh, students on the course was very 
um, anxious about uh, needling around the adductor muscles and the groin area and so on. And, you know, he, he really wanted to make sure that there was a lot of draping, a lot of explanation and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, while that's all great, what I um, wanted to ask you was my, my feeling about this whole consent thing and uh, expla- explanation is, you know, one of the most important things to get confidence and to have your patient um, have confidence in you is not what you say or do, it's how you are. And, um, you know, particularly as a man, if you're a man and, and a pelvic floor, uh, pelvic dysfunction expert and you're treating a woman or, or men for that matter, it's how you are and, and is really important. Uh, all this other stuff is important too, but how do you feel about that? You know, I think you need to, you absolutely, first of all, you, you need to make sure the patient, you, they feel your confidence. Yeah. You know, they, they need to know that you're the expert. Yeah. Um, and that you're, you have to be totally comfortable within yourself. Yeah. To, to, to work in this. It just, to me, working in a, in a vagina or a rectum is no different than working on the lumbar spine for anybody else or a shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just from, it's just natural. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's really interesting, Wayne, is that, uh, the pelvic pain patients, it, it takes five to seven years. I think it's going down now, closer to five yeah. before a patient that's suffering from pelvic pain yeah. finds a specialist that knows what's wrong with them. Mm, wow. And that's tragic. Yeah. So by the time they get to me, they've, Everybody's been in every every orifice of their body, so they're just just do it, get in there and do something yep. and help okay. me. They're they're really not too concerned, yep. uh, for the most part. For the most yep. part, of course, yep. you you just always have to be very sensitive to that. Yeah, you made a great point there. I mean, uh, yeah, these patients are probably not treated well in the standard medical um, uh, paradigm, and the, by the time they get to you, uh, you're almost the last resort. Like just fix this problem and so yeah mm-hmm. they'll do whatever you yeah. have to do uh, and so and you've got to respect yeah, there are some of them are suicidal they're very depressed sure. but yeah it's um it is interesting but it, you know one of the questions you asked about um about it, about the exam and mm. and looking more at the orthopedic world yeah is uh is there's it just seems to be you know there we're on the labral tear bandwagon in this area of the country i don't know about mm. where you are yeah. but um, there's a lot of labral surgeries being done in our area yeah. and i i receive a lot of uh post op patients yeah. um after you know they've been through their primary therapy their sports medicine therapist yeah. for their rehab and they're like well they're not better so it must be their pelvic floor <laughs> and the pelvic floor actually gets blamed for a lot of things. Yes. Um, but the bottom line is it's, you know, it's, it, it's a missing piece yeah. of the whole picture. Yeah. And, and, and it, the important piece is to look, not put every person in a box yeah. that this person has hip pain. So we only look at the hip and, you yeah. know, maybe the SI and lumbar spine. But in, but we're not going to go to the pelvic floor. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to, um, to look at those, are, are you guys seeing a lot of um, labral repairs and reconstructions in your area? Yeah, that's right. We're seeing a lot of those, and uh, you know, 
I think what you've said before about uh, looking uh, holistically is so important. And to use a, a dry needling example, you know, if you've got lateral elbow pain, I always say anyone can go, oh, well, it must be the extensors of your wrist and fingers. Let's just have a look at extensor digitorum and brachioradialis and uh, extensor carporadialis and whatever. But Hang on. There's actually eight muscles that uh, at least eight muscles that refer to your lateral elbow. And some of those are not even in your arm. So if you don't look right. elsewhere, then you're really missing out on possible solutions for your patient. And I think that obviously ties in with what you're saying. You sound very uh, holistic in the way you look at things. You're not saying that the pelvis is it. You're looking at maybe the pelvis is the result of many other things that are happening. I sometimes call it the victim. Yeah. Um, the pelvic floor is the victim, and and my job is to look from head to toe for the criminal. <laughs> Who's driving that system? Who yeah. did that to you? Okay. Because well, it, the, you're, you are twisted, and you're twisted in your pelvis, but why? Okay, well, I've just got the you know? grab for this podcast now. You've just said it, so that was great. That was the teaser. Uh, it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even scripted. Um, which is great. So uh, no. moving, moving on to um, the examination, what sort of clues are you, are you looking for? You know, like, you know, as a, I'm always trying to relate this to your normal uh, therapist that does your back pain and stuff. They're looking at um, leg lengths, they're looking at pelvic asymmetry, shoulder heights and all that sort of stuff. What are you looking at? You know what, I, I kind of hone in on um, – I, I look for uh, active functional testing. So, for example, I'll look to see if in the load-bearing position, if there's a load, a failed load transfer in the SI joint. Is there a failed load transfer in the hip? Do we have an anterior translation in the hip um, with weight-bearing? Um, because the, the hip is strongly related to the pelvic floor mm-hmm. via the, uh, the attachment of the obturator internus connecting with the, uh, the, the tendinous arc of the levator ani muscles. They share a tendinous connection. Um, there's a strong relationship between hip and pelvic floor dysfunction. And then when we have hip dysfunction, then we have, you know, SI and lumbar dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who's driving the hip? You know, is it a rectus femoris? Is it an adductor? You know, again, is the pelvic floor the victim or is it the driver? Sure. Okay. So coccyx pain is another thing that, um, that, you know, that I would look at and look at the position of the coccyx, um, primarily internally. Yes. Uh, and that would be uh, another area that me, not everybody might look at. Yeah, look, that's, a, that's another one that's really interesting. I'd love to talk to you because uh, 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 with no disrespect, you're about my vintage in uh, terms of your uh, when you first studied. Um, and uh, when I was at the British School of Osteopathy in London studying osteopathy, uh, we were taught by the, um, the, uh, the, the teachers there to treat uh, coccidinia or coccyx pain using a, a PR technique, basically going putting the finger into um, the rectum and pulling the coccyx back around if it was in a flex position. Is that something, that's something that I know now that the current students coming out would go, God, you would never get me doing that. Um, <laughs> now, uh, it's just like, you know, I've even seen on Facebook that people are saying, uh, can you tell me about anyone who still does that stuff because they don't want to do it themselves, the younger people? What, what do you, how do you yeah. approach, uh, coccyx pain that's mechanical like that? You've got, you've landed on your coccyx, you've been skiing, whatever, and you've got a flex coccyx. What, what, what are you doing? 
Um, it's part of my everyday practice. I get, I get in there rectally, yeah. and you've got to mobilize it. You've got to take the pressure off the ganglion of impar. It's sitting right there. It, it just causes so much pain, yeah. rectal pain. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, the other thing that's wonderful about this technique is, is you can sit, your, your, your fingers are right on the coccygeus and the puborectalis muscles. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and, and for me, because I like, when I draw a needle, I like to be as specific. I don't like to blindly, Kind of go places, so, and I, I'll, I'll keep a finger rectally internal, and then a, a needle on the outside, and I'll go, I'll go right to the trigger point that's holding that coccyx in place, okay. and release it. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful while you, for you, but what about the patient? What are they feeling? Is it particularly <laughs> uncomfortable? Um, you know, you know, it's it's never comfortable to put your, you know, to have a finger in the rectum. I'm talking it's about never, the, the it's needle. never. What about the needling at the same? And uh, you know, to be honest with you, the um, the posterior needling of the pelvic floor is not that uncomfortable. It's not that bad. Okay. Um, it's almost similar to a glute. Okay. Um, needling a glute. Yeah, it's not yeah. as bad. The the urogenital triangle, um, and near the perineal body, that can be really really sensitive and. Um, and I don't, oh, I won't actually needle some patients that are really upregulated. Okay. You know, if they have a lot of central nervous system upregulation, you can just see they're, yeah. they're sweaty, they're, yeah. they're jumpy. Yeah. That's just contraindicated to needle them anywhere. Sure, sure, absolutely. You don't want to needle them. I mean, those are the sort of things you want to look out for uh, when they don't come in like that and then become sweaty and hot. So you don't want to be doing it when they're already like that, obviously. Right. And sometimes that's their baseline. Yeah. You know, these people have been in pain for a minimum of six months yeah. and, like I said, an average of five years. Yeah. So when you're in pain for five years and you can't sit, yeah. I literally have patients. I can't tell you how many standing desks we have because yeah. of yeah. pelvic pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, they, they stand on chef's mats all day and they have feet, their feet are hurting. Yeah. Uh, they can't sit. Yeah. They can't have intercourse. I have some women, they can't wear underwear. Right, my male patients, really? uh, they, I, they wear certain, um, certain boxer shorts and, and I have one male patient, he sewed in a piece of silk. Right. In the area that, where his penis was, the shaft of his penis was touching. Right. The underwear because the touch was just intolerable. Wow. That's incredible. Terrible, terrible amount of pain and it's great that you're able to help, um, uh, these people. Because it's, that's one of my next questions, actually not the next question, but one of my questions is that what's, what's happening in, in the medical world? Because these people are, are obviously, I don't know, they're probably going to someone like you, um, first up though, because you are an expert in the area, but what does someone like that do when they don't know about you? I mean, if they go to their regular doctor, let's ask this question now, we might have, yep. um, if they go to the regular doctor, uh, is a regular doctor too busy for this or are they just not well trained in this area or they just don't know what to do with them? Well, which one of those things is it or is it all of those things? It's, I would say it's all of the above. Yeah. Um, I think people really have an interest. Um, you know, when you go to your family practitioner, you know, they're, they're generalists. They're not specialized yeah. in any one thing. Sure. And so they'll, they'll listen to the patient. They'll try some baseline you know, uh, medications perhaps, and then they'll refer to urology okay. um, or to gynecology for uh, for females, yeah. and then you know, and then they you know, then the the majority 
of um, of physicians will, are trained in the basics. Yeah. Um, but when somebody keeps coming back and keeps coming back, they're not better. They're not better. Yeah. You know, and and you know, in medicine, we tend to when we don't know the answer, mm. we tend to want to make the patient the problem. Sure. Yeah. And and the patient, you know, my my tagline is you have to always assume it's physiologic. Sure. And and you always have to to delve deeper. And if you don't know the answer, that's okay. Yeah. We yeah. don't always know the answer, but then it's time to refer. Yeah. And then it's our responsibility to say, okay, if I were a, um, a, a general urologist and I had a, a male patient with chronic prostatitis and was mm. not responding to antibiotics, so clearly it wasn't a bacterial problem, yeah. then, I mean, then it's my job to get on the internet and say, what else could this be? And who yeah. else in the area? Who, who can I refer yeah. this person yeah. to? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in medicine today, it just people don't take the time. Yeah, yeah. People don't take that extra, they don't take the extra step or three yeah. or four steps. And yeah. so patients get referred from one, well, let's, they just kind of get turfed, if you will. Yeah. They get turfed to neurology or they get turfed to gynecology and then to urology. Yeah. And then, of course, they're always turfed to psychotherapy yeah. and, yeah. and that it's, you know, it's on their head. So basically. And at that point in time, it is. <laughs> You're just passing on uh, somebody who you can't help, and it becomes someone else's problem after that. So then you go, well, okay, that's not my problem anymore. But it doesn't necessarily fix the problem. So uh, one of the key exactly. things I imagine here is that time is really important. So how long is your uh, your new patient um, consultation? You know, I see every patient for an hour. Sure. Whether they're new patients, repeating okay. patients, everybody has one hour. Okay, right. Okay, well, that gives you enough time. You're not hurry. Because I think imagine one of these, one of the things about, you know, that the very uh, nature of the time you give somebody is part of the treatment. Uh, you know, you're already treating them by right. saying to them, I've got you in for an hour. So even if you yeah. help them in, you know, 15 minutes, the fact that you've given them a whole hour to listen, talk and discuss and uh, really uh, be empathetic to their problem, that's part of the treatment. Yeah, it is. And I have to say I'm very blessed that I have um, – I don't – I'm not part of any insurance programs. Right. And so it's a fee-for-service practice, yeah. and patients um, just pay for my services yes. at the time of service. And most physios are in, 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 contracted with the insurance companies, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't make ends meet. You know, it's just not possible to make ends meet. Yeah. Um, seeing a patient every 15 to 30 minutes, maybe 30, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but then the patients are always hurried in the rush, and they're like you said, yeah, they're never listened to. Sure. No, I understand that. We, we don't have the uh, insurance uh, issues that uh, you guys have. We, we're a, 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 I think you called it a fee um, for service uh, type of uh, setup. So basically one can decide how long you want to spend with each patient and that and you charge them whatever you want to charge them. There's no insurance side of things. Very, very few. There are insurance companies here that uh, uh, do stipulate um, how much you can charge because then they uh, can send patients to you or recommend them if they are their members, but they don't tell you how long to see them for. So it's a little different over here. But anyway, let's move on. Um, tell me about um, the role of biofeedback because, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, intro, you're board certified in that area. Tell me about it. How does it relate to treating pelvic dysfunction? 
Well, biofeedback is, is in, in general, it takes a, you know, um, an unconscious um, physiologic process and makes it conscious so the patient can actually see and visualize what their muscles are doing. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's one thing to, to look at your biceps and have your biceps work. But, you know, we can't, when we can track the pelvic floor, you know, do you feel anything move? And people in pain especially don't feel anything move. Yeah. Um, there, it's an area that there's just not a lot of awareness, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of sensory input, um, you know, from the external, um, senses. So it's, uh, it just, it's a, it's a helpful tool yeah. so the patient can actually yeah. sense their internal body and what their internal pelvic floor muscles are doing and how they work. Yeah. Um, what I love about it is, it just helps me look at the tone of the muscle in general, the resting tone. Yeah. And the patient can say, well, I am relaxed. And I'm like, well, if we look on the computer screen here, mm. you know, your muscles are really not that relaxed. Sure. And let's see if, if we can alter it. And what's nice about it is any alterations that the patients make in the on the computer screen is because they made that change. Yeah. I didn't do it for them. Yeah. So they're learning to pull up internal correlates to feel yeah. when they do something that's great. I'll say, what did that feel like inside your body when that happened just now? Yeah. And let's see if we can reproduce that. So we can take that information home yeah. and reproduce it in our functional settings. So it's really helpful to um, to to show the tension of the pelvic floor yeah. and then how that tension relates to the rest of their body and their posture and their postural holding patterns, yeah. um, they're in a very uh, almost fetal flex position of a lot of the time, chronic pelvic pain. And it's hard for them to stand upright, and they just don't make the connection between letting go yeah. of the pelvic floor and breathing. Mm. You know, they're not using their diaphragm. They're not getting any motility yeah. um, and mobility in, t- in, in their viscera because they're, they've got this clenched system. Yes. And so the biofeedback helps them see that in this in this picture that they can't normally feel. Okay, I see. So it's really a, a tool that you use for yourself uh, in terms of uh, looking at tension and also explaining to patients and connecting the dots. So when you do this, this is what happens. So uh, that's that's the, the the main use that you have for it for you and them. I'm actually imagining your clinic actually and your room in particular right now, given uh, your uh, chat with me today. And I'm thinking you must have a lot of diagrams and uh, you know little models and you've got your biofeedback machine is that right mm-hmm. lots of models especially models um right down from the ribs um yeah and showing patients how rib dysfunction how it connects to the autonomic nervous system and yes. and you know how they some of their visceral responses are are actually because of musculoskeletal issues and viscera that may not be releasing in their in their um in their body and and you know so we can go we look at ribs and and I have foot models yeah you know to show them what pronation supination if you know if my foot is supinated then it's going to put me into some external rotation yeah. in the in the hip and you know what does that do to my pelvic girdle yes so you know every you know just very visual very visual okay that sounds good i mean that perfectly segues into my next question which uh again is not scripted um so but um you talked a a lot about um looking at the whole body and, and i guess that's what you call the integrated systems model you have told me a bit about this already but is that right is that what your uh you that term there Yes, um, the integrated systems model is a program that I learned through uh, Diane Lee and LJ uh, Lee yep. in Canada. 
and um, and it's uh, it's a beautiful model. Yeah. Um, it assesses the musculoskeletal problems right from head to toe, yes. and it helps to understand. It helps you know looking at the rela- interrelationships yes. um, between and within different regions of the body, and yes. how one impairment in one area can impact another. Yes. Um, you know, for example, a pronated foot can lead to rotation of the pelvis. It can lead to pelvic pain, back pain, and poor movement strategies. Yes. So, it's our job to assess what caused the pain and the movement dysfunction. You know, who's the driver? You know, was it the pronated foot or was it the problem in the pelvis that caused the foot to pronate? Sure. And, you know, where's the failed load transfer there? Who's who's not doing the job they're supposed to do? Yes. And, you know, it's um, Diane, I don't want to, this isn't my work, this is the work of Diane Lee, and she described mm. this so beautifully. Mm. She said, you know, it's like if you, if you listen to an orchestra warming up, yeah. it's it's almost painful to listen to. Yeah. But the minute, the minute everybody, once the conductor comes up, and yeah. tells everybody when to turn on, and yeah. and, and the timing. Uh, then you know, then we have harmony. Mm-hmm. And so our musculoskeletal system in dysfunction is the orchestra warming up, yeah. and the brain is the conductor. Yes. And we have to rewire the brain yes. and teach the brain how to change the motor and sensory input, yes. so we can and change their movement patterns and move them out of these positions of that they've been holding themselves yes. in. Yeah, no, that, that's a really nice uh, way to put things uh, very neatly into that uh, to explain that model. So, I mean, I, I guess th- this sounds great, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's basically how I I try to work, and uh, many people who uh, have been working for a, a more experience perhaps try to work in that more holistic approach. But do you think that um, undergraduate programs are uh, looking at that type of approach, uh, what is it like in the U.S.? I mean, I guess that's where you would know most about what's being taught. Are they being taught uh, things like this, or or is it much more evidence-based stuff? Uh, much more, um, you know, is there any evidence that this is the the um, the the, uh, the condition? What's the research out there, and so on? What's your feeling on that? Well, um, I think this in this country the um, the degree is a doctorate in physical therapy, and that doctorate um, has driven um, evidence based uh, research to be more in the forefront and yeah. uh, in, in most programs, and and that's fine, that's wonderful. And uh, I, I have to say this is just such a sub um, specialty mm. of um, of physical therapy. It is a specialty, and and a lot of programs will give maybe one day uh, of lecture uh, devoted to this. Yeah. You know, also, you know, in the yeah. TMJ world, you know, I, I, I've been lecturing at the university, Regis University here in town for over 20 years mm. on um, on TMJ. And the students get literally, they get six hours. That's wow. it. Yeah. Wow. On the temporomandibular joint, other than their anatomy and, and you know, that mm. kind of thing. Mm. But just to really understand temp- temporomandibular dysfunction, yeah. they get six hours. Yeah. And so if, you, if that's a, uh, if that's an interest in, in pelvic pain or pelvic health is what I like to call it, um, a lot of the students that have a strong interest, they seek, uh, internships, um, for themselves. Okay. Um, and I just had a student, um, this past year, um, was with me for 16 weeks. Okay. And to, you know, full time, 16 weeks so she could get her, you know, her training. She wanted it to be in the, in pelvic health. Yeah. 
So the, the universities will give you the basics, the very basics. Yeah. And if a student has a special interest, I have to say that um, every university that I've worked with has been really um, supportive of the student trying to find um, internships that will support that specialty yeah. Um, field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. I mean, I think you're right. I think... Um, where, uh, you know, maybe when you, uh, did, uh, PT and you, you qualified, uh, initially, uh, maybe things were taught differently uh, back then in terms of, um, evidence based and so on. And, and, but things are becoming that way in, in all the manual therapies. And I think maybe they have to do that because of the way they're funded and, and the research base that they've got to keep pr providing research for what they do and just doing research anyway. But then stuff like this, where we're having to look, um, elsewhere than where the patient presents with pain. Uh, we're looking more holistically at the problem, maybe using other types of disciplines to uh, cross-reference uh, from. Uh, probably need to be done as a postgraduate thing when they come to you, for instance, and do an internship or as a postgraduate course. I don't think that the stuff that you're talking about is has they don't have room for that on a normal undergraduate course, maybe. Absolutely not. You're 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 correct. It's not it's not feasible. No. It's um you know it takes too much time yeah. to really know what to do with it, and there's no time for that in the in the basic programs. Sure. No, I understand. Okay, so um now there's been a lot of research about trigger points in pelvic uh, pain and the relationship and so on. With with one study, uh, Weiss, Wesselman, Fitzgerald, Cotarinos uh, references I can add to this podcast later, but understanding 90% of women with pelvic pain and interstitial cystitis or incontinence have painful trigger points. Um, now, we both use dry needling and many of our audience uh, use trigger point therapy or dry needling itself. But which muscles are, are the real, uh, the, the criminals, as we, we might put it that way, um, we, we, we look for them, the, the ones that cause the most trouble, the, the troublemakers with, in terms of pelvic pain? Right. So, um, and of course, we all know the Travell and Simon referral pain, and you can look at those as um, as a lot of our referral sources. And the adductors, uh, um, the obturator turnus piriformis, uh, so as the quadratus lumborum. However, I I find the abdominal wall um, probably and the adductors um, two of my biggest uh, culprits yes. uh, in my clinical practice. And uh, it's been really interesting. I know you've talked a lot about um, referral pain and, um, and and such, but Dr. Uh, Ursula Wesselman, she she injected a noxious stimulus into the uterus of rats and actually did a, um, a biopsy of the muscle of the rectus abdominis mm -hmm. um, and biopsied and looked at what it looked for trigger points and found that there's an actual map of of trigger points around about like a horseshoe shape around the umbilicus and the inferior wow. umbilicus and it's interesting that you know she took it that far um, and it is in rats and not in humans but it certainly does correlate clinically to the patients that I see yeah. the abdominal wall is so strongly affected yeah. And again, it goes back to that, you know, as an osteopath, you know, you, you have such a much better understanding of this than, than we do as physios. The, um, the viscera and the, and the whole lymphatic pump between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and, mm. and the stasis, 
that sits there. Yeah. Um, when we don't get that, we get pelvic congestion from stasis yeah. and just, we just need to get those things moving and, yeah. and the adductors, um, then pull in and then we just see this, if you kind of visualize this saran wrap pulling into the middle of the body. Yes. Who pulls? Yeah. You know, and kind of look at the muscles that are going those directions. Yeah. Yeah, it's so much more interesting, isn't it, to look at things in this way than simply I hurt here, so rub that. Uh, it, it's just uh, right. anyone can do that. So uh, it's so much more interesting to know uh, uh, the broader picture, isn't it? it? It is. It's it's fascinating actually to watch something so so distal, yes. um, you know, be released from something you know proximal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, in a, in another um, study to do with uh, men this time, chronic pelvic pain syndrome, uh, they have trigger points in 88% of, of, of cases of pain, uh, men who have pelvic pain. So do, do the men have different uh, muscles that are the culprits to, to women generally or not? Um, you know what, the, um, they have the same muscle groups. Yeah. Uh, it, the only difference is that their pain is more posterior. Okay. Um, they tend to have um, more rectal and sometimes, you know, penile pain as well. But, yeah. um, but you know, the pubococcygeus is just, you know, part of the levator ani muscle group. So it's the deep levators, the right. um, the, the tension that they hold. And that's going to hold the entire levator plate. That's the pelvic diaphragm. Sure. So, um, you know, it's, you know, when you say, you know, there's, it's just not seen a lot. I mean, the doctors look at prostate. Titus, yes, I have pain here. You know, it, it hurts. There's pressure. It, 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 it's painful to, to empty. Um, there's hesitancy. And then they look to see if there's an, a, you know, a benign prosthetic hyperplasia that could be causing that. But, you know, by the time we get to, we get to see them, it's the pelvic floor muscles that are, that are the obstructive force there. And, and not, you know, a lot of urologists will do a rectal exam to palpate the, the prostate, but it's so interesting. When medical students are not trained, and OBGYNs, believe this or not, OBGYNs are not trained to assess mm. the strength of the pelvic floor muscles. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, I, you know, I just, I have my nephew and my stepson are both in medical school, right. and they, they, they what's well, not part of their training? Mm, mm. It, they don't even, you know, the OBs that I've worked with and and over the years. Mm. They, they feel the muscle to see if there's a fascial defect, maybe right. postpartum with a, with a prolapse, yeah. but they don't know how to muscle grade it, yeah. and they they've certainly have no idea how to assess for a trigger point. Yeah. And so the male patient is going to the urologist. Yeah. And so the urologists are looking rectally for prostate. Right. They're not palpating muscles. No, no, no. Well, they don't know how to do that. They don't. They're not trained. No, no. Well, that's right. Yeah, well, I guess, as as we said before, I mean, it, it's a bit like this. The analogy would be that, you know, universities are uh, and medical schools are for one thing, but if you want to learn more about this sort of stuff, you're going to have to do it more po postgraduate, even if you're a medical doctor, and learn about the sort of work that you do. You're going to have to do a course uh, that covers this type of thing once you're finished because then, they, especially in medical school, they won't have time for any of this. No, no, it's a specialty, and I can appreciate that they need to um, make it a specialty. Yeah. Um, I think just the introduction that there is um, pelvic pain, which actually my stepson is um, in medical school, and he did have mm. a PT come and lecture to them for an hour on, yeah. on 
pelvic pain. Yeah. So at least I got an introduction to know that it exists and that, um, you know, physios can be um, accessed to help treat that and how to look for it. Absolutely. And and what you said before is true, that that because they're not going to be taught at the undergraduate level, whatever, whoever you are, whether you're a medical doctor or physical therapist in whatever area we're looking at, uh, you have to know when this is out of your um, field of expertise or scope of practice or understanding and therefore then refer. Because ultimately, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the patient. And if the patient uh, can get to the right person quickly, then obviously the problem has more chance of getting fixed and the, definitely the right person is is the uh, the key there. Who is the right person to help this patient? Right. Exactly. Okay, now, um, Jarrell, of course, um, famous in the work of, you mentioned this before, in fact, uh, about abdominal muscle uh, trigger points um, and how uh, he's connected visceral pain and hyperalgesia and uh, the trigger points around the, the abdominal muscles. So you agree that obviously the, the trigger points around the abdominal muscles can give you uh, a lot of pelvic um, dysfunction or pelvic pain, I should say. Um, is that is that your understanding too? Do you, do you agree with that, the work of Jarrell? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's really interesting that even looking at the pyramidalis, how often do we even look at that muscle? Oh, right. right. Okay. Um, it's yeah. so small. Yeah. And yet um, I dry needle the pyramidalis um, frequently and it helps, it significantly helps my patients with urgency and frequency. Wow. It's really it? interesting. It's pretty, it's pretty small it's, muscle. You've got to be careful you know, of needling that. Yeah, you you really have to you have to know your anatomy. Yeah. And and you have to know your viscera mm. and you have to have really good palpation skills to know what depth you're at. Yeah, absolutely, and directions and so on. So um, I always say right. that four mm-hmm. things you need to know with dry needling, and that's the referral pattern, uh, the caution points, uh, the, the, and the direction and the depth. Uh, they're the four main things with any trigger point. If you know that, you're pretty good, um, and that particularly applies to pyramidalis, I think. Yeah, and the pelvic floor. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, now, now there's um, the, the we've already talked about the the key muscles, the the, the culprits. But and and uh, let's move on to dry needling uh, to wrap up a little bit here. Uh, what has been a very interesting uh, talk with you, by the way, Dawn. Uh, fascinating. Um, so the, you obviously use dry needling and. Um, you're um, uh, using that to treat pelvic pain. Tell me about uh, the, the role of dry needling in, in treating patients with pelvic dysfunction. How do you find it works? Well, for me, um, you know, again, going back to who's the, the criminal and who's the victim, if I had, um, you know, if you have a muscle that just doesn't release yeah. and it doesn't release, it doesn't release, you know, first of all, you're asking yourself why. You know, is there a movement impairment underneath it um, or instability? But but once, it, but you might have restored that, but the muscle has just learned. It, you know, neurons that fire together wire together, yes. and so there's a brain map of that muscle to stay on. Mm-hmm. Whether the the culprit that's that's caused it to start that way is is turned off or not. Yeah. So the trigger point dry needling for me, um, whether I use it functionally with movement or at a certain point in their range of motion, yeah. or just in a static position, it helps me turn off the muscle. 
Yep. So a lot of, for example, a lot of erectus femoris will turn on. It'll be tight and keep pulling the femoral head anterior. Sure. But it only turns on at a certain range of motion of hip flexion. And and so I get him into that, right into that position, right where it's starting to turn on, and yep. needle it and turn it off right where it's a culprit. Yeah. So it's it's really helpful to to um you know when the when the when the original problems are being resolved to turn off the muscles to keep the feedback loop from continuing in the brain. Okay. Okay. So you, you obviously you're saying that you use this uh, a lot, turn off muscles, and obviously you know reduce tension in, in a in a trigger point or a muscle. Uh, it's it's useful for what you do. Absolutely. Okay. Now obviously use it every day. Okay, that's great. Um, what you, know, you obviously, if you're needling around the the pelvic floor and the uh, the muscles in that area, there there are more risks um, and uh, involved with that. But to use a a, a quote that I can't uh, attribute to my uh, myself at all, uh, Jan, uh, who you of course know, he says there are no dangerous muscles to needle, only dangerous therapists. So, um, so <laughs> would you agree? With that, I mean, given I absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, you know, I've been on uh, dry needling classes. I teach pelvic floor dry needling, hmm. and um, and so there's uh, it's it's definitely interesting to see some people's hands get a little heavy, if you will. Hmm. I think um, you know you really have to first of all, again, knowing your anatomy, get your finger inside the vagina, feel the thickness of the urogenital muscles. Hmm. Where are they? Ask them to contract, relax, yeah. feel it know it, um, be it. Um, but what's dangerous in the area is bacteria. Sure. Um, so there's a lot more bacteria in the perineum that you see in other parts of the body. Mm. So it's my standard of practice to um, clean the area twice. Nice. Um, instead of just one time, I clean it twice to be sure. Yeah. Um, and and just like any, you know, if you're you know, in the in the rectal region, you always want to clean away from the site you're moving, sure. and then and and dis- and discard the um, alcohol pad, and then do it again and discard. Sure. So you never rub back and forth because you could bring bacteria back anteriorly. Okay. Um, and I think the biggest risk is um, you really need to know where the male urethra is. Okay. Um, you're not gonna. You know, it's. I know. It was actually a urologist and I, um, and Tina Anderson who developed the dry needling um, course for the pelvic floor, and so she said, "You know, Don, we put huge needles in kidneys to get a biopsy. So this little thing's not going to do any any harm. Don't worry about it." But she said, "Here's the area you want to really be careful around the the, the urethra. Right. It's just it's very sensitive. It'll be it'll be sharp. It'll be painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, just know your depth of tissue and know your anatomy, and you'll be okay." Okay, so same rules apply, obviously. Right. Okay, so um, now um, to finish off with, tell us about your best success story that involves using dry needling to help a patient with uh, uh, pelvic dysfunctional pain. So I think, and I was thinking about that um, today, and uh, I have to, I call him my, you know, we have, there's a saying in the U.S. called, you know, there's a poster child for, you know, this organization or a poster child for that, that. Well, I have a postcard patient, and he's um, a 65-year-old male who is an avid cyclist, avid, avid cyclist, you know, one to 2,000 miles on his bike a year, and does about a 30-day bike trip every summer. Mm-hmm. And he developed uh, pedendal neuralgia. 
Right. And you know his life was over without his his bike. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know his approach was you know visceral connective tissue, dry needling in the pelvic floor, um, releasing the muscles um, of the you know around because the muscles of the pelvic floor when they go into spasm they compress the pedendal nerve in the branches, mm. and and then it just retriggers retriggers. So doing a um, some release with the um, dry needling around the pelvic floor. And, uh, and finding a new bike seat uh, that was not going to compress um, the pedendal nerve for him. Yeah. It's called the spongy wonder. It's amazing. <laughs> and so now every year he comes to see me once a year, or uh, once once before his bike trip and once after, mm. and I get a postcard from every place he is. Oh. And, I, oh. and our, our refrigerator in the office has all of this man's postcards. Oh, wow. So I call him my postcard, my postcard patient because... He's back to cycling. He has no pain. Wow. He takes no medication. Mm. And it's a, pedendal neurology is a tough thing to treat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, that's a great story. I, I'm really um, grateful for that one because uh, you can imagine that, you know, for some people, their hobby and is a, a sport or an activity like that, and uh, their life, as you say, would be over. And it's terrible to think that this guy, had he not met someone like you, he would be terribly um, depressed at home, getting more weight and yeah. reducing his lifespan. You know, he was he was depressed and you know and not being able to be physically active and mm. you know I mean you know not even being able to sit you know yeah. uh, you know he was an accountant he had, he had to quit his job. All right. Wow. He had to quit his job. He was on disability for a year because yeah. he couldn't sit. Oh wow. Gee. So you know. That's right. Yeah, it Have was you been approached uh, by a bike manufacturers to design a bike seat. Yes, they have. It's called. There's several actually, um, but my favorite is called the Spongy Wonder, and oh. it was um, developed by a man, a cyclist who had pedendal neuralgia himself. Right. So it's it's a really it's an it's a very interesting seat. Right. Um, it's a little larger than an average bike seat, but it does right. take all the pressure off the pedendal nerve. Right. And they're customized. I mean, they're they're measured from ischial tube to ischial tube. How much space do we have there? Okay. Um, so we're we know there's no compression. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. I don't know who designed the bike seat that you see, you know, on those bikes at the Olympics <laughs> or whatever. But I can't imagine it was a pelvic um, dysfunction expert. No, and you know, if you look, if you take a whole group of cyclists, male cyclists, yeah, you know, they might talk amongst each other, yeah. but they'll all say things like, you know, my balls are numb when I get off my bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that's that's not normal. No. It's not normal to lose sensation in a body part yes. from sitting on a bike. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes then it takes that step further and it turns yeah. into pedendal pain. I love the way you just said that so casually. Uh, it, it, it just means that you are uh, using a language like that just freely every day because you're confident in what you do and how you talk and how you are, whereas that's not going to be something that the average physio or manual therapist is going to be saying genuinely speaking. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, <laughs> it is part of my everyday language, uh, except for when I get home, I have to put a filter on it. Yeah, probably best. <laughs> Um, now, um, okay, so uh, let's um, uh, finish off with uh, thanking you, Dawn, uh, because uh, we've come to the end of our podcast time. We've been speaking for about an hour, which has gone like five minutes. I've been really interested in what you've said. 
and I've learned a lot uh, from what you've said, and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you very much, uh, Dawn. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. CPD Health Courses. Try needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.